Hey everyone, and welcome to episode three of the 13th Hour Podcast, hosted by Fatima Kreshi and Zirak Krum, where we dissect hot-button political news stories every month while bringing you closer to the facts and history through a few interviews or two and conversations between us hosts ourselves because, you know, we have probably the best banter in the world and you will listen to a lot of them in this one, so brace yourselves. In this episode, we take you to a mountainous, culturally and historically rich and diverse country in Southwest Asia, Iran. Interesting fact, officially known as Jomhuri Ye Islami Ye Iran, which is, translates into the Islamic Republic of Iran, if you have not known that already because I just learned that today. With the advent of the protests marring the country recently due to insane levels of inflation and government-imposed austerity measures and a lot of other political troubles, that we are going to be discussing both in this and the next episode. Zirik and I thought we'd debunk misinformation and stereotypes about Iran by taking a history trip to how Iran got to a breaking point today. Here is our conversation. Hope you guys enjoy it. first thing that we should really talk about is you know questioning ourselves like I personally I'm just gonna tell you like why I want to do a run is because a like I've I know a lot of friends um who are Iranian and some of them and actually one of them isn't even a Muslim like he's he's of a Baha'i faith and like I've heard like crazy stories from him of being um you know trying to leave the country uh, living as a refugee and just like even in uh, like in Iran alone around like the the mass protest time in 2009 how much he had to endure and just like a whole spate of stories and cases that we don't really see a lot of corporate media um, organizations reporting on as accurately and fairly as they should be and like with all of these like series of movements going on around the world mm-hmm. um, Iran was like the least covered I was like True. Yeah, that's why I thought it's pretty important. Yeah, I think uh, similar reasons for me, at least in terms of, you know, lack of international coverage, but Mm -hmm. also um, in the 1970s, uh, like late 1970s, my grandfather was actually in Iran, like uh, his company basically posted him there. So him, my grandmother, my mom, and I think two of her siblings actually saw the Iranian revolution like sort of unfold mm. before them and they they left after you know the shah uh fled the country right shortly after that but yeah you like whenever she talks about her childhood she always brings up iran and you know how her life was there and what they had to do during that time and stuff so like it's it would just be like interesting to you know go back and actually read a more formal account cuz you sort of have like personal experiences and then oh this is what history says happened Mm, and what the news currently says happening because it's always in the news now so Mm -hmm. we have like so many different versions of you know just that one country alone that we don't exactly know what's true and what's not anymore yeah different versions from different news outlets different countries it's it's a lot like Kashmir but yeah not exactly but, like, how does Pakistan see Iran? I think I'm really mm-hmm. interested to hear that. I, I know, like, with the recent, mm-hmm. 
One Belt, One Road initiative that China is also trying to go in forces with Iran and kind mm-hmm. of goes through to Iran from Pakistan. But, like, what's this personal relationship that Pakistan has with Iran? So it's been it's been up and down at times. Okay. So you've got, uh, at times you've got good relations with them, and then at other times it's very strained. Like, okay. with, the tw- with the 2019 uh, terrorist attack, where uh, Pakistan's foreign office basically, uh, before Imran Khan went to Iran, issued a letter to uh, the Iranian government saying that, oh, well, the militants that launched an attack in Balochistan um, came from Iran, right? And I think one of the things that's sort of common across Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq is more often than not, you have the governments of these countries being roped in um, to accept accountability for things that terrorist forces do. So things oh, that are right, not yeah. really things that are not really in their control, they have to uh-huh. end up apologizing for, which mm-hmm. is kind of kind of hypocritical if you're, you know, thinking about oh well, Pakistan's asking Iran to apologize for that, and mm-hmm. you know, and then its own track record isn't scot free either. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but growing up, um, I had a lot of Shia, I have, not had, have, uh, a lot of, uh, Shia friends. So for them, Iran and Iraq, they're both like very religious, r- religious sites, centers yeah. and, and, you know, religious sites. Um, and I think that's also why Iran has this sort of notorious or infamous image and for those of you who can't see us i'm making air quotes with my hands right now uh Mm, because of the huge ones yes uh which is weird because i've got tiny hands but i'm making huge (laughs) air quotes (laughs) in the camera they they're taking up like one quarter of the screen i know (laughs) um but uh iran is has also identified with um shia islam as being uh their like national religion right which yeah I mean, yes, you do have other countries that are similar, you know, like Syria and all that. But if you have a country that is as vocal as Iran is, for them to be a Shia nation and to have the amount of, not boldness, but to be as vocal as they are is something that I don't think a lot of Sunni Muslim nations anticipated. Um, especially when you look at how Shias, uh, and, and like Sunnis and Shia nations, but mostly Shias and Sunni nations are discriminated against because yeah. of their religious beliefs. So yeah, Iran's a badass. I, yeah, I honestly think so too. Like countering all of those other Western demonizations of the country, that if, if we kind of think of it like from a very broad and general perspective, then Iran has like its huge shield against like all of these different um, criticisms and scrutinies that they keep getting every, year by year. And they still continue to go on yet. But however, there's like a huge but here. They're still like they still have this inability to try to maybe not oppress its own people. Yeah. Not just oh, economically, yeah. Yeah. but uh, for, also for, sociocultural. Yeah. For for context, 
when I say like Iran is badass, I mean the Iranian people are badass. I don't oh, mean like bad. not the government. I I don't mean like oh the government that's like being an asshole is mm. badass. No, like mm. that's not what that's not what I mean. Distinction yeah. here. Disclaimer. Yes. Like please, Disclaimer. please. We need to know. Yeah. Like, anybody listening to this who hates Iran, well, we do too. Well, the the, the government, government to be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But the culture. Yeah. Oh my gosh, dude. The yeah. tea, the food of Iran. Can I just say before we actually get into the serious business, it's oh, it's amazing. Oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Oh, nothing Pers- can stop that. And the yeah. music too. Yeah. Persian poetry, the language is just like it's beautiful yeah 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 because yeah, you know like i was um i was reading about like how the monarchical era of iran mm. when it even began and of course like it began with all of these empires whether it's the safavids the samaras empires like a long time ago around like mm. i think before christianity and it just obviously evolved like any anything else and i didn't know that up until like the 1800s that you know, the czars came along and they didn't really want to colonize Iran at the time, hmm. but they just wanted to basically buy the lands that were that were bordering Russia or at least yeah. that were closer to Russia. Because Russia at the time were like, they were trying to expand, right? Because now we yeah. don't even know if they're in Europe or Asia. They're literally all over the world. And oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so literally what they were doing was expanding their land holdings. And at the time, the dynasty called the Qajar, I think the Qajar, 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 Q-A-J-A-R dynasty, Mm -hmm. they were very much anti-West. So that was the first ever interaction with the West, with the Russians, which I find super cool because to this now, today, the Iranian government, they're just in bed with Russia, like, all the time. (laughs) Well, the foundations were laid in the 1800s, which is a very mm -hmm. slow wooing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how it started. A lot of that, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I think um, a lot of people, because, like, Iran and, you know, it, it used to be part of Persia, so we know, like, the old history of it. And But I think a lot of people more associate the country with um, the Pahlavi dynasty, which was, you know, the, the, the rulers of Iran from, from where? <laughs> I think the Persian empire like the older persian dynasties that existed oh yeah the pahlavi family i I have it i have it right now Uh, the pahlavi dynasty uh came into power in 1925 yeah yeah that was way 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 later than that yeah yeah. but the but the qajars actually were the ones that set in stone like this Mm -hmm. um very modern like modernization of institutions whether it's education or basically just constitutionalizing everything Mm -hmm. because of and I don't want to give them credit to it, but it's the Russians. So the Russians actually, they mm. came in and they wanted to introduce progressive laws, right? And mm. these progressive laws basically split um, Iran, the Qajars, into two camps. The first camp, I think they were called the intelligentsias. So the intelligentsias yeah. were anti-traditionalists, right? So mm. it's really easy. You're like, you're either with the progressive thinkers, you know, basically the very elite class, or you're with the traditionalists, who are, you know, essentially the clergy and the ulamas. Oh, okay. And the splitting of this actually created, or rather even, like, incited the Constitutional Revolution of 1905. And that's where all the revolts began against, and I think this is the most interesting part in the early 1900s, that 
the Qajar dynasty actually had such a failed economic ruling system by what is called like what historians call the Bazari class. So literally Bazar and then I because most of them were merchants. So they included oh, students, okay. the ulama, the um, unskilled laborers who all migrated from the countryside to, you know, the urban society, you know, kind of like mm. the industrial revolution, yeah, like yeah, post-industrialists, yeah. right? So all of that happened. And then they like they basically started forming their own campaigns, which still exist to this day. And this is like in the early 1900s. Wait, campaigns isn't like political campaigns? Like yeah, political parties? political associations. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sort of like unions. Oh, and they okay, were okay, okay, called, okay. I think I have it here, um, Anjuman e Asnaf. Anjuman e Asnaf, yeah. Anjuman e Asnaf. Yes, okay. yeah. I think that means something. And I my Urdu shit, so probably. Uh, it, it's Farsi, so I wouldn't really know this either. Uh, oh, okay. I don't know. Uh, I just feel like Farsi and Urdu have so many similarities. Of course they do. Yeah. yeah. Huge, yeah. That, that's but they wanted to yeah. get rid of the central administration and have like a horizontal, like a very horizontal form of governance. So oh, borderline is, socialism. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I keep thinking of, like workers' revolution, workers' utopia. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's mm. it. But still, the caveat is that they still wanted to apply European influence codes and laws. So they were still very much inspired by the European system of like progressive democracy, mm-hmm. and they wanted to apply it on their own. But at the same time, making sure that foreign interference is prevented and deterred at all costs. So yeah. they wanted to borrow their system without having them like physically being mm. in the country. It's it's also very interesting because Iran is a country that has not been colonized by the West. Yes. Like yes. they were ruled. I mean, I guess you could debate whether or not their dynasties were ethnically Iranian, but mm. they have never been colonized. Mm. Which never. Which is which is a very interesting um turn of events but it, it's it's very interesting to be in that particular area in asia when you look at you know the way that the ottoman empire was broken up when yeah. you look at um you know what happened to the indian subcontinent in afghanistan and all of that and iran mm-hmm. is this one small enclave which is sort of no yeah, but it's also very strategic because mm-hmm. everyone wants a buy-in yeah. into yeah, the yeah. country. And it never, like, it always was so well-walled, like, mm-hmm. walling all of those influences. Even though they had been doing, like, trades with um, the, like, the Chinese dynasties mm-hmm. and all of these yeah, yeah, other yeah. Um, imperialists yeah. and just traders and merchants coming in and going. But the Russians were actually the most successful because they were able to buy the trust of like the traditional Qajars because they mm. obviously were like, okay, now we, we want to, because at the time poverty was always on the rise and there was like that system of, you know, monarch, uh, monarchical system where if mm. you're on the top, if you're like the knights, the royals, you're rich. And then if you're like right at the bottom, you're like just impoverished yeah. beyond belief. So the Qajar dynasty from what, from what you've said seems to be like pretty successful when it comes to like revolutionizing Mm. or modernizing the institutions right and they've used for like a really long time as well like 1800s to 1925 why Mm. did they like what happened why how did the Pahlavi dynasty take over i think the Pahlavi dynasty took over because of their like the economic system that they were applying was Mm -hmm. not exactly a constitution 
they were trying to basically do what many like what Iran does today, yeah. but in a very very anti Russia fashion. So it was very much like self dependent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the economy still was like on the downfall, and like although constitutionalism became like this very popular ideology, mm-hmm. but this like they still had this very like the domestic goods got more expensive. So transportation and production costs like basically got really expensive Mm -hmm. and foreign goods and services enjoyed more profit from cheap manufacturing sectors. So Russia, like although they didn't want Russia to be in, but Russia was still like investing in their manufacturing sectors for cheap Mm -hmm. labor. So obviously we know what happens after that. This sort of inverse relationship in trade and economic policies in Qajar's dynasty just sunk the whole country. Then the Pahlavis came in like around 1920s um, and then they wanted to basically say that, you know what, we will be doing these economic deals. Well, we, we will have multilateral relations mm-hmm. with the West. Mm-hmm. And then they befriended Britain. They yeah. befriended European powers. And this is really where the um, Anglo-Iranian oil company comes in. Although, that, I mean, they were, they, were, they were originally known as the Anglo-Persian oil company. Even though yeah. Persia didn't exist at that time, but okay, fine. Orientalism. You, you want to call it Persia, go ahead. Um, and the, the company at that time, um, in the, in like the early 1900s, mm. uh, they sort of struck a deal with Iran where it was like, okay, we can, you know, mine your oil. Do you mine oil or do you, wh- how do you, you, how do you extract oil? You frack, right? Yeah. Fracking. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll frack your oil. That just sounds wrong, but we'll frack your <laughs> oil. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll frack your oil and we'll give you a percentage of the royalties, right? So they mm. offered Iran 16%. And originally Iran was like, okay, yeah. And the Iranian people as well. They're like, okay, yeah, cool. You know, we get we get 16%. That's, that's pretty dope, you know, because we, we've got like a lot of oil and shit, right? Then um, in the 1940s, late 1940s, um, you had the prime minister come up with uh, so he basically uh came up with the first development plan that was supposed to revolutionize the industry and agriculture for that they need funding right so where do they go they go to oil right but at that time they're like oh well we, i mean we get 16 percent of the royalties but that's still not enough maybe we can like negotiate and get like more of a share of royalties right we, we want more than just 16 percent and that's when they start looking into the treaties that the company has with other persian gulf nations and everyone else is getting 50 percent and iran is getting 16 percent from their deal and slowly they start like digging deeper into the way that this company is behaving and mm-hmm. they realize that it's becoming pretty colonialist which is a term that the world bank used in one of their declassified documents like they declassified right. it in 2013 but they written it in 1952 and they wow. said that um so the tardy Iran- yeah the iranian government basically lost trust um in the company when they refused to pay income tax in 1930 like they were just like nope we're not going to pay income tax at all. Huh. And then they refused to uh, negotiate, renegotiate the terms of the actual like agreement of uh-huh. um, 
you know, how, how you want to split up the shares and stuff, right? Uh-huh. And finally, a bunch of Iranian politicians had had enough. So they went to Mossadegh, or Mossadegh, uh-huh. um, you know, how, uh, however you pronounce his name. And they came up with a new plan, and they gave it to the company, and they said, this is what we want. We want more of a share, because, like, compared to the other... Um, contracts that you have with other countries you're giving them a lot more and the company mm. said no of course tldr they, they said keep all the wealth yeah. for themselves tldr yeah. they said no so then iran um tried negotiating with the british government and they weren't they, they increased it like a little bit but they still didn't you know agree to their demands and then most was like mm, i don't know how i feel about you guys i don't think i want you in iran and by this time, mm. he's prime minister, and he has, like, a lot of support, like, a yeah, lot yeah. of support, to the point where protests um, are actually what got him the job in the first place as mm. prime minister. Like, there was, like, a pro-Mossadegh yeah. movement, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, eventually, uh, the British government got pissed, and... <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, get this, um... In 1953, they could see no other way out than to remove Mossadegh and initiated and backed a successful coup against his government financed and organized by the CIA in August 1953. And that's the end of our podcast, kids. All right. See you tomorrow. (laughs) That's the chapter in history that I find the most fascinating, to be honest. Mm -hmm. To this day, I still read about the coup. Because I just find it so interesting that, one, they covered it so well. You know, both oh, yeah. the Ameri- the Allied powers, they all thought that they could get away with it. But it was so obvious that Operation Ajax, that, again, they yeah. redacted until very recently. 2013. Which it, it, yeah. What, what the hell? Why did it take them so Oh, yeah, of course we know that. Because it's still a crime. It's a fucking war crime. Um, yeah. In Iran, it was called the Black Coup. Yeah. And... Now, even during like the the recent movement, they still recall it for this very reason, and that's mm-hmm. why there's so much animosity against the U.S. because of this very coup. Yeah. And at the time, it wasn't a coup. It was, I mean, for the CIA and for all of these national intelligence agencies, it was just so that they can save the the resources that they apparently had ownership over <coughs> capitalism because they thought that they had property over their oil, you know, everything to do with oil. As soon as the Americans realized that the like iran had oil that was it for them mm-hmm. like they just fled with their you know their cavalry all the mm-hmm. way to iran thinking that they can get all literally every ownership mm-hmm. to oil yeah. and it was funny because the aoi aioc i think that's is that the yeah, yeah. A- AIOC. AIOC. yeah yeah gosh it's, it's americans and their acronyms um they were only receiving what 20 percent of the profits iran now well every like at the time or like post-world war ii yeah post um, yeah yeah yeah, 16 to 20 percent yeah exactly but i think what we should really talk more about because this figure had gone through so much is Mm -hmm. muhammad mossadegh oh yeah like he i think is someone that was at the time so he was even the shah was afraid of him the shah was afraid that he would topple him as well so yeah as a first progressive secular leaning you know mm-hmm. government that he wanted to lead 
his I think his party was called the um, the National Front, the National Front mm-hmm. Party. And he wanted like his general, he's very, very like simple roadmap was that he wanted to tip the balance of power of the parliament to the people and away from the crown and away from the armed forces. Yeah. That's it. Like democratizing mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I remember at one point he goes to the Shah and he goes, hey, listen, I'm the prime minister. Can I, you know, have the power to appoint the head of the armed forces? And the Shah says no, and you're fired. Following that, there were like days and days of like protests to the point where the Shah was then forced to reinstate Mossadegh yes. as, yes. uh, as premier, as right? premier again. Where. Yeah. And he had this overwhelming support of the people because the people at that time saw the Pahlavi dynasty as essentially a dictatorship Mm. where they did not have, the people of Iran did not have a say in anything. And you have this, you know, uh, basically a people's champion coming up and being like, Mm. let me help you guys get what you want. Right. Yeah. And the Pahlavi dynasty was also known for being very pro unite West. Pro West. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which is also why a lot of um, Iranians did not see eye to eye with them. I would say, because mm. you you also have to remember that following the nineteen twenties, you have Iran in this very unique position of uh all other uh, of being like basically with the break of the uh, breakup of the ottoman empire and the dissolution of the caliphate Mm. which for people that how would you explain the caliphate to people that don't know it's not isis no it's not it's not isis please not please not um it's it's i think it's just like the continuation of the muhammad like of, of prophet muhammad's i think just descendants right like you would just uh, say the, like no, his his chosen no, one or not, not not exactly descendants but more of like uh, followers they're, they're considered ardent followers okay so basically at the end of the caliphate it became a title that was old that was given to the ottoman emperor Mm. The Ottoman Sultan was known as the Caliph. That was one of his mm. titles. Um, mm. And as Caliph... But who appoints a Caliph, though? Is so, it self-appointed? Okay. So, or? So, so originally, in the beginning, which we're talking about like 1,400 years ago, the Caliph mm. was democratically elected. Like, right. the people would get in a council, and they would vote, and be like, okay, this guy's the next Caliph, this guy's the next Caliph. Somewhere along mm. the line, in the various uh, Muslim dynasties that followed, because of internal wars within the muslims themselves you had it becoming a inherited title and mm. the last inheritors of that title were the ottoman dynasty oh yeah so it, it sort of also began like running with the family the way that royals run yes, and yes, so yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. okay so okay so the successors yeah, were usually yeah. part of the family mm. and that, so okay. yeah because okay. the ottoman empire if you remember covered a huge expanse that covered, uh, covered Mecca, covered Medina, all of that. So mm. they had, like, the religious backing to be like, mm. our sultan is now mm. the caliph. Even though there was a separate head imam of the empire, the head imam and the caliph were two different things, even though, I mean, mm-hmm. historically, not really sure how that separation came about. But when the caliphate was dissolved in the 1920s, you had 
literally every Muslim nation being like, what is happening? Right. Because that person, that, that office is like, I guess you would say the head of a religious organization. It's like saying the Pope wakes up one day and says there is no more office of the Pope papalage. Pope, yeah. Papalage? Popage. I think so. Popage. Okay, Popage. I'm sure Papalage. that does not exist. <laughs> Papalage. Basically, the Pope getting up one day and being like, I'm dissolving this office. There's no more yeah, Pope. Yeah, like, right? I'm stepping down. And the people yeah. are like, who do we look up to now? Because this yeah. whole clergy sort of like mentality then yeah, dies yeah. down. Exactly. So you had um, a lot of clergymen in Iran wanting to preserve uh, or wanting to reform Islam to sort of fit in with the way that uh, a country would be governed. And mm. they saw the Pahlavi dynasty and really, uh, I guess it was a default that they saw the Pahlavi dynasty that way because the Qajar dynasty had already ended by that time. Mm. They saw it as being un-Islamic because if you look at actual Islamic jurisprudence, there is no justification for a monarchy. Mm. So right. that was one of the reasons why Ayatollah Khomeini really criticized the Shah in the nineteen yeah. in the late nineteen seventies. Uh hmm. Ayatollah Khomeini was a Shia scholar. Um yeah. he was exiled in nineteen sixty three, but he would record his political lectures and send them to Iran and then they'd play them in the mosques. Wow. So, so he led the cassette revolution, like that's what they call it. Because all of his lectures would be then duplicated on cassettes and CDs and sent to uh, the the uh, neighborhoods and, and mosques and stuff. And That's so yeah. interesting. The fact that it was in the 1960s and yeah, yet yeah. there was still this sort of distribution mm-hmm. through like, you know, like a third party, the way that we oh, do yeah. it now as you know, through social media, yeah, yeah, yeah. the way that the imams still speak to others, like through social media and YouTube and all oh, of those yeah, other yeah. things. And my, my mom, she was nine years old when this happened, but she still remembers how. So uh, for people tuning in, uh, if this is your first episode, um, I'm currently in, in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm a student. So at the beginning of the, the protest, which had been going on for six months, you had this uh, trend that at 10 p.m. every night, people would blast um, revolutionary songs from their windows and you would hear chants and people, you know, chanting slogans every night at 10 p.m. And glory be to Hong Kong. Yeah, glory, uh, the, uh, glory be to Hong Kong. That was one of the, the slogans that's been used a lot. And when I told my mom... She goes, oh, that's what they did in Iran. Like, every night, they would, one house in the neighborhood. So they had a curfew installed towards the end. Um, And curfew meaning lights out curfew. Like, completely, like, shut it down. One house at the end of the street would start playing Khomeini's lectures on the loudspeaker. And the police would go there to get it to shut off. But before they could reach it, they shut it down. And another house at the opposite end of the street would start playing it. It was coordinated. Oh, the police was on a wild goose chase. Yeah, it was coordinated <laughs> to perfection. And like every night you would hear his lectures being broadcasted in Farsi. And mm. everyone sort of, if you keep in mind that Khomeini wasn't even in Asia at that time. Mm. Like it wasn't like, oh, he was like exiled to Afghanistan or anything. No, this dude was like in France. Mm. This, this, this dude was like in Europe. He was not there. And wow. he still managed to lead this just this I mean yes it was a revolution but 
but it was so like deeply ideological too like he basically shifted the paradigm Mm -hmm. of politics in iran at the time while not even needing to be there you know that's something that i thought would just happen in the internet age i'm like genuinely surprised Mm -hmm. that khomeini Mm -hmm. wielded so much power in iran uh to the point where he uh so khomeini actually advocated for an islamic state right yes Uh, yeah islamic republic yeah some people will call it sharia law I personally don't think that's like an accurate label because yeah. there's different types of Sharia law for the different sects and subsects mm. in um, Islamic jurisprudence as well. But he got a lot of backing from Marxist communist or socialist groups in Iran for some reason. Um, in the 1970s, you had two militant groups. You had a Marxist group called uh, the uh, Fadiane Khalq. Um, probably not pronouncing this right because <laughs> i speak urdu i don't speak farsi uh but you have yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and you had the islamic uh leftist organization so they weren't exactly socialist but they were definitely leftist the mujahideen khalq as well the um, mek the mek yeah uh, and they began to mount attacks on government officials in the 1960s uh right. and it was sort of like yes like they were opposing the Shah initially, um, always, uh-huh. and then you had Ayatollah Khomeini and um, Ali uh, Shariati, I think that's his uh, last name. Yes, yes, Ali Shariati. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now Ali Shariati was influenced by uh revolutions in Cuba, I think, um, and in other parts of the world, and he was like. What? Guys, we need to bring this to Iran, and then he's and this it's it's sort of like how you see, um, uh, uh, protests globally. If you look at them, if you look at the protests in Catalonia, and if you look at the protests in Hong Kong, they will reference huh. each other. That's a lot like yeah. what happened during the civil rights movement in the U.S. Mm-hmm. when they were actually borrowing so much of that Marxist and just like that red nation ideology, yeah. even from China. Like, yeah, they had the red, like the red book, you know, the little book yeah, that they had from Mao. Yeah. And it's it's sort of like they, yeah, they eventually succeeded in making the Shah leave the country. So there wasn't like a formal ousting. Like they didn't go and say, you get out of here. The Shah just left. Um, he settled in Maryland, USA, or at least that's where his son is of right now. Of course he did went to yeah. the US. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, but this was also essentially the start of, I guess, why Saudi Arabia, a lot of people believe that this is the start of why Saudi Arabia doesn't like Iran. Hmm. Because if you look at Khomeini's ideology of like the, um, the essence of it was you cannot be an Islamic monarchy because there is no such thing. And obviously, mm. if you're going to give that to the House of Saud, you know, um, hoping MBS doesn't hear this, but, you know, it it makes sense why they would not want this country to <coughs> exist. Because you're essentially, you, the only way that they could, I guess, uh, figure out a way to delegitimize it was to say that, oh, Khomeini is Shia and Iran is a Shia nation. Hmm. And Saudi Arabia so, is Sunni, so basically like gothifying all of yeah. those like yeah. non-Sunni groups, yeah. right? So Iran being one of them. Sure. But then, so there were basically, so Iran basically was like a threat in the Middle East, right? 
although they were this mm-hmm. close around the 1950s to would have become, you know, now what they call Israel, like the only democracy in the Middle East, if that if the coup wouldn't have happened, it would mm-hmm. be Iran in the place of Israel today. So would you say that it's still like a coordinated mission, maybe not with the Sauds exactly, because they kind of came in, they rose to power a little later mm-hmm. in the 20th century, but this sort of coordinated uh, coordinated attack that they did to oust um, you know, uh, Mossadegh, mm-hmm. and then he went to years of prison, and he basically died in his own house. He wasn't even granted a funeral. He was buried literally even to this day. There's like this, some sort of shrine around Mossadegh's house today because like there was just so much oppression yeah. around all of these scholars and activists and journalists. Like, why do you think, especially like just within the Middle Eastern sort of you know circle here, mm-hmm. um, why were they threatened by Iran? Why was Saudi Arabia? Why all of them threatened by Iran? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where did they get their money from? Mm. You know? Yeah. The source. Yeah. The source of all the gold. I mean, which which is not to say that, you know, the the US or the UK or whoever, like the West has this um what's the word I'm looking for? Um Un- it's not that it has this unfallible influence because mm-hmm. it doesn't but just mm-hmm. that if you are a government and you are if someone is giving you a big fat check you will yeah. ignore a lot of things yeah like money if, will shut you like, up like Imran Khan in Xinjiang mm-hmm. even though a lot of the Uyghur Muslims that have gone missing were married to Pakistani citizens and their husbands are actually the ones that sounded the call uh, because they would go across the border because they were traders so they would go across the border to meet their families and their families just weren't there and uh, if you've read the New York Times article and if anyone hasn't you guys really should but they got the same script right Um, and they freaked out and they're like "What, what, what is going on here right so if I mean, if he can do that, if he can ignore all of that stuff, and anybody else can, yeah. any other yeah. leader can in the world. Mm-hmm. But the, fa- I mean, the fact that this also happened around the time, like when you were talking about the, you know, dissolution of the caliphate, it mm-hmm. was also the dissolution of Western colonial powers, right? And in a way, around that time, yeah, around that time, right? It, especially post World War Two, mm-hmm. when the coup happened, when the revolutions took place, mm-hmm. you know, around the world, there were just like series of all of these uprisings against their dictatorial government. Mm-hmm. Either that, or you had a lot of coups taking place in South America, you know, a la Venezuela and the Honduras, you know, El Salvador, and all of those other countries mm-hmm. that were still happening at the team at the time. So yeah. the U.S. military bases they continued to rise, but. What I personally find really interesting is what was like how they were kind of like a pieces of the chess game in a cold war between U.S. and Russia. Oh, yeah. Oh, that I, I find so interesting. And I mean, I don't want to like cold warify this whole situation, mm-hmm. but it's important that we also acknowledge how there was so much like that geopolitical maneuvering between, you know, U.S. what U.S. foreign policy believed was to just contain Soviet influences and then they used Iran and also to an extent Turkey oh. as pawns in their chess game just so that they can counter mm-hmm. the Soviets. And that is when, actually, that is when Iran um, turned around and basically turned to Russia. 
and their relations today are like it's still very intact because they realize that the u.s is going to basically practically neo-colonize iran like the in the ways that the now no AIOC now is BP you know also the most like one of the biggest polluters in the world you guys please like don't invest in BP if you are listening to this yeah. as they fucking intoxicated the seas um yeah but I, I yeah I just find this really interesting how like all of these foreign powers began resurfing and resurfing even though they sort of went into hiding again and again even post 1979 mm-hmm. revolution. And that's why you still have like, you know, many of these new strategies that keep coming up. These policies in Iran, they are essentially mirror images of exactly these like Cold War areas of conflict. Their foreign policy is shaped around Cold War. That is. (sighs) I know. I'm, I'm still kind of like thinking, why haven't people really thought about it like why why can't people sort of try to push back from this mentality that is also very much like validating what the americans always say is like oh russian interference russian influences Mm -hmm. in our country wherever russia goes it's 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 an enemy country you know it's our arch nemesis and Mm. yeah i think a lot of that characterization is also i think i think it works because people don't look at the other side right so Mm. yeah like oh russia is an enemy country why because russia's communist so Mm. Mm. and the the, there's never really answer there's never really an answer to this so like so what like yeah russia was communist so what right and the only thing that they could really come up with was oh it's a threat to capitalism yes right Leaving aside what Stalin and Lenin and, and, and Mao and, and all of those people did in their own cultural revolutions, um, leaving that aside, but it, using basically demonizing an ideology and being like, oh, yes. this is wrong, this is bad because, well, just because it's bad, right? Mm. It came more from a place of trying to preserve their own economic way of life. Hmm. Which makes Bernie Sanders so interesting a figure to watch mm-hmm. when he interacts with Republicans and people from the far right. Yeah. Uh, because he's essentially using a very similar ideology, but that's not being demonized. Yeah. Like, I mean, it is. Like he still gets curtailed, he still gets like interjected and just like criminalized as just like, oh, why is this white socialist guy trying? Mm. Like he I think it's kind of interesting to see in our day and age that people (laughs) like Corbin and Sanders are dealing with Islamophobia. And I'm just like, what? Like white white guys are dealing with Islamophobia now? Like that is a very interesting turn of events. Mm. But we do see that both of them are embodiments of exactly what failed in the twentieth century and now they have more of a following. Because mm-hmm. we realize that our generation, at least that's what we're seeing here, you know, our millennial generation, if you will, mm-hmm. um, they found that everybody else that preceded them were definitely just doing it for self-interested reasons. Yeah. It was only about profit making. It was only about this veneer of Western democracy mm-hmm. that never existed. It was never about human rights, but human there, rights yeah. was just a tool. There, there's a lot of, a lot of talk. And I think... Um, you remember uh, Greta Thunberg's speech 
who, yes. uh, by the way, is Times Person of the Year. Mm-hmm. Congrats to her. Woohoo, 16-year-old. Yeah. Um, Where was I when I was 16? <laughs> Crying in my bedroom. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, she did cry. She just did it on a global stage for an actual cause. Yeah, but so coherent. Yeah. Um, it, it, in her speech, like, she she mentioned, like, you guys keep saying that you're going to... I'm paraphrasing a lot here. Mm-hmm. But she basically called everyone out and she said you guys keep saying that you're going to do something but you still care only about economics and how that's going to affect your own individual countries right and i mean at the end of the day if we look at it the people in power right now right a majority of them come from the generation that was brought up and sort of brainwashed to an extent with the rhetoric that you see in the 1970s and the 1980s they are not able to look at the cold war as a historic event because if you've lived through it it will never really be a historic event Hmm. right so if you go to um a person who fought in the vietnam war uh, a veteran right and you try talking to them about the the war um, they will have a completely different way of approaching that as opposed to someone who just read about it in history books. Yeah, oh, oh of course, of right. course, by all means. Yeah. Lived experiences mm-hmm. are very different, but when you're just a proxy through another book, through another speech, mm-hmm. then it's always going to be very biased and yeah. you will never get that accurate account. I mean, but, then, but, but then at the same time, hindsight is also always twenty twenty. Yes. Quoting a friend of mine. He loves to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> Tap that. Yeah. Tap that. Yeah. Hindsight is oh, always Oh, now you got your own. Yeah, now you got a tattoo idea. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, but even, even if you are just reading about it in history books, provided that you have read enough history books and you have enough of a diverse opinion, you can mm-hmm. maybe sort of piece together what actually Mm. happened yeah uh, which may not always happen because like a lot of people they google something pick up the first page of google read through it and be like now i know everything in the world wikipedia yeah yes I'm, i'm actually specifically naming a friend who reads wikipedia all the time please stop Please stop. That's not where you get your information from. Uh, and please validate my opinion right here. Yeah, um, but I don't. I mean, read Wikipedia, but like go down to the actual links that they put in the articles mm-hmm. and read those mm-hmm. instead. And read those instead. Yeah, Thank you. Like, not the summary. Not the summaries. Don't read Wikipedia. Oh. FYI. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. our tattoo number two. Don't we don't do Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> don't read Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cite Wikipedia. I, I mean, that's the that's the purpose of this episode alone, because mm-hmm. especially when it comes to social movements that are non-state movements yeah. with non-state actors, it's a little bit more difficult to you know track what happened, what mm-hmm. are the numbers. Like one very simple example is like during the Green Movement alone in the in two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. So the Green Movement was when like it's probably like the um, one of like the most publicly uh, voted and voiced against elections in Iranian history. 
um, that they said it was all rigged and, you know, that um, I think what was his name? Ahmadinejad at the time when mm-hmm. he was elected, people were saying that oh, he, he basically just like, you know, he, he basically rigged the elections. Right. Yeah. So even at the time, the the government, they put the death toll at just 30. And I every other movement, they put it at 70 to 100. And we see that happening everywhere, even in the Hong Kong protests yeah. in Chile, in Iraq. You know, yeah. We always see them trying to, you know, just downsize what the impact of these anti-government, anti-state movements mm-hmm. are. So the question really just comes down to, and of course, it's an open-ended question, that, you know, how then do we really keep tabs of all of these events that are happening like right here and right now like for example this podcast it will be archived as part of a historical document so 10 20 years later people will be referring to this (laughs) please let that happen officially in a national library i don't think that will happen (laughs) but if if, if there's a fan listening and if you have money please do invest in us um yeah but yeah so it's just that whole part of you know how do we look at things in hindsight Mm -hmm. And how do we try to make it all around facts and facts only? Like you and I are journalists mm. and obviously we're still very fucking opinionated journalists. <laughs> so uh, what does that say about us and yeah. our coverage of what we're what we think about Iran? You come from personal yeah. viewpoints as well as public viewpoints mm-hmm. as, you know, objective and subjective altogether. Yeah. So it's it's like, do we try to like package this so that, you know, the people that were disenfranchised, that were demonized you know the iranian people who uh, so many of them are living as refugees in exile all around the world mm-hmm. are we doing it so just so that we also shed light on them or are we doing it just for the sake of objectivity and then people will then be deciding on their own what kind of opinion they want to form i want to say both because mm-hmm. i don't i don't think that you can separate the two right mm-hmm. so if you want to make an objective opinion you need all the information that you can get yeah. So you have to listen to those disenfranchised people. You have to listen to the points, like the viewpoints that very specific writers of history have deemed not worthy to be mainstream. Mm. Because one important thing that I think we all need to remember is that a lo- when we talk about places like uh, Pakistan, India, Kashmir, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, all of that. All of the actual historical events that happen on the ground were probably not recorded in English. I would yeah. be very surprised if they were recorded in English first for, hand. Firsthand for a non Western audience. Right? Yeah. If you are coming across an original English historical piece, Hmm. that may be accurate, but there's also a high possibility that it will not be accurate or it will not represent all the nuances that exist in that very specific society and that very specific culture, right? Hmm. So if by doing this we can sort of let people know that oh you know this is also this is something that happened and you need to take that into account when you make an opinion about basically a couple of a million people you know that they're all like this they're they all do this their governments like this and this is what they want and this is what they think and this Mm. is how they act and this is how they feel and this is why we can't let them in our country Mm. right 
America today. <laughs> yeah. Um, you need you need every single point of view imaginable, basically. Yeah. I think this would be a good time to call an end to this episode before we focus on contemporary protests with our next guest, our interviewee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Our interviewee who is who used to live in Iran um, mm-hmm. in 2009. Well, he lived there until 2009. He was born and raised there, if I'm not mistaken. And he left yep. uh, shortly after the Green Movement. Yes. I think. Yep. Yeah. Um, he is currently a refugee. Um, mm-hmm. And we will be speaking to him in our next episode when we catch up from 2009 to what is happening currently right here and now yeah in iran mm-hmm. yeah uh, which basically yeah, yeah it mirrors everything that we've been talking about when it comes to the revolution and the movement and the elements there and the very complicated politics both in and outside of iran mm-hmm. yeah with a death toll of a uh, hundred people as of november yes. t- 26 2019. That was the official figure. Do, do we know what's happened today or until now? Uh, do we have an update? Not exact. I mean, they're getting their internet back, which is a good thing. Yes, but very slow, though. They're slowly like, getting it back, uh, mm. uh, which reminds me, maybe we should also do an episode about different war tactics in the 20th century. Yes, I would really like to do yeah. that. I was reading about the just yeah. war theory as well the other day just for this show mm-hmm. and i was like huh that's really interesting the self-defense forces and the laws that exist there we really need to cover that yeah and i feel like we should also do one talking about just islamic jurisprudence and islamic ideology because debunking all of this like very like fear-mongering yeah. around just yeah. this one word sharia yeah because like you, you you hear that being thrown around a lot like pakistan is a sharia uh, nation and you're like Honey, no. Yo, where, how, when? I I mean, currently I'm living in Malaysia and you have no idea how many people, how many non-Muslim people that are born and raised in Malaysia just have this extremely distorted understanding of Sharia. I mean, sure, maybe the system is Mm. very flawed, but just what Sharia is in itself, like where was it born, what it's all about, Mm. it's not even, it's it's just probably the most villainous way to look at Islam. Yeah, so... I mean, I guess we can ask our viewers, do you guys want us to do an episode about yes, Sharia law and war tactics in the 20th century? Yes, yes. Yeah. Do let us know because we are taking a different approach to our podcast very soon and maybe be more, be less serious if that helps <laughs> yeah. to for some listeners that think that we're a bit too in. Serious. Yeah. yeah. We get comments. Yeah sometimes we do get comments well, if Fatma gets comments i can't see anything <laughs> i relay those comments to you <laughs> yeah yeah at the end of, yeah. at the end of the week i get like an update these are what 10 people said about our podcast i'm like great yeah follow us on at the 13th hour on twitter and at the 13th hour pod on instagram and that's that's it right Pretty much. And the 13th hour on Spotify and everybody else, everywhere else. Okay. So. Right. So we'll see you guys. We'll see you guys for the next episode. Episode number four. Episode number four. Fucking finally.